Today on Maine Calling, Congresswoman Shelley Pingree. It's winter recess for members of Congress, and First District Representative Shelley Pingree is home in Maine. When she returns to Washington, Congress faces big decisions over the budget, the border, funding for Ukraine, and more. In fact, many believe congressional inaction on spending bills will lead to a government shutdown. As a member of the Appropriations Committee, Pingree is in the eye of the storm. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Today on Maine Calling, we ask Congresswoman Pingree about the shutdown deadline, the war in Gaza, and her stance on other big issues before lawmakers. We'll also learn about her recent work on preserving working waterfronts and pickleball. Yes, pickleball. Congresswoman Shelley Pingree on Maine Calling, just ahead. Maine Calling on Demand is made possible in part by Maine Farmland Trust, working with farmers to grow the future of farming and food in Maine. Learn how you can get involved at mainefarmlandtrust.org learn. And by Maine Seacoast Mission, strengthening Maine's coastal and island communities through education, health, and support. Learn more at seacoastmission.org. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and this is Maine Calling. My guest today is Maine's first district congresswoman, Shelley Pingree. Representative Pingree currently serves on the House Appropriations Committee as well as the Agriculture Committee, and she joins me to discuss the many issues currently in the news. Congresswoman Pingree, welcome back to Maine Calling. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's great to be with you. And we, of course, welcome you to join the conversation. What issues do you believe Congress should prioritize? Are you worried about a potential government shutdown? What else is on your mind? Send a brief email, please, to talk at mainpublic.org. Post a comment on Facebook or Instagram or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. Representative Pingree, you have served 15 years now uh, in Congress, and I know a lot of that time has been tumultuous. How would you compare right now, this moment in Congress, to the 14 and three-quarter years past? That's a very good question, and I, I really feel honored to have served um, for the amount of time that I have and uh, very grateful for um, the citizens of the first CD allowing me to do that. Um, I would say this is a very challenging time with Republican control of the House and our uh, somewhat of an inability to move forward on important things we, we need to be doing. Um, if you wanted to know if it's the worst possible time, I guess I would say the hardest time were the four years under Donald Trump. And it's not just because um, I disagreed with him or I didn't like the policy. Um, we did have a uh, some Democratic control, I think, in the House or the Senate at that time. So um, we were able to block a lot of bad things, but um, it was the cabinet secretaries that we had to work with. There were so many people working in government during that administration, from Health and Human Services to uh, the Department of Interior. Um, you know, the Health and Human Services people would come from the pharmaceutical lobby. The Interior people came from the gas and oil lobby. There was not a lot of understanding about how to govern, and there were a lot of bad policies that went on at that time. Also, a lot of cutting of staff, of capacity. We lost a lot of very experienced people in government. 
And uh, honestly, we've been making catch up. And I think you see that the most on the Appropriations Committee, where we've tried very hard to rebuild the capacity, say, at the EPA, for instance, or Department of Health and Human Services. So um, that was a harder time for me. But this is frustrating because in many ways, um, as I'm sure you're going to want to discuss, um, we can't pass an appropriations bill. We can't move forward on the security funding. Uh, there's just a lot of things we can't get done, partly because the margins are so close and um, because there's some, you know, extreme Republican members who seem to have more sway than the moderate Republican members right now. Well, that's indeed what I was going to ask you about next. Are you worried um, that there will be a government shutdown? If my math is right, you have three legislative days when you come back um, to figure this out. Yeah, it's very frustrating. We're on a recess right now. And uh, we were actually scheduled to be on recess next week as well. But, uh, you know, gratefully, the uh, speaker is bringing us in on Wednesday of next week. But that gives us three days. Uh, March 1st would be the first deadline. We divided our appropriations bill in half or into two different tranches. So um, some things would shut down on the 1st and some on the 8th. Now, I'm the ranking member on one of these subcommittees on appropriations. That's the interior and environment one. Um, and truthfully, most of our work is done. So I have a Republican chair that I work with. Uh, we frankly get along pretty well on most things, and we've come to an agreement on almost everything in the bill. We've had to make cuts in areas where I would prefer not to make cuts, um, but we've worked it out. That's not true on all of these subcommittees. And one of the most difficult parts of this is that um, the Republicans have attached a lot of riders. Um, those are the sort of uh, politicized ideological statements or language that gets into an appropriations bill. It could be on appropriations or, I mean, it could be on abortion or LGBTQ plus issues or immigration. They're often unrelated to your bill, um, but they're messaging things. And he is having a fight right now, the speaker with the Freedom Caucus because they want those ideological statements in there. And I don't know how we can get this passed um, if they don't come out. So that may be where this falls apart, but um, we've made some progress. And as I said, on my subcommittee, we do pretty well on a bipartisan basis. So we'll see what happens. Um, I, I want to explain one more yeah, thing. I know this is a little wonky, but um, what, what is sometimes confusing about Congress, and people will say this to me, and I appreciate it, they'll say, hey, can't you, uh, can't you Democrats just negotiate a few things, give up some of the stuff you want, and make this all work? And believe me, we negotiate a lot. Um, you know, the most recent immigration issue in the Senate was one of those things that there was a lot of negotiations that went on. But um, they have very strict rules on the Republican side in the House. And they do not believe in having a bill that's supported by Democrats and Republicans at the same time. So they have a rule that says you have to pass a bill by the majority of the majority. So when the speaker needs to call on us for help to get a certain number of Democratic votes and a certain number of Republican votes to pass something like an appropriations bill, the Freedom Caucus gets very angry. They have the right to recall the speaker. That's why we go through so many speakers. And I just want people to understand that's what's falling apart in Congress. It's not that we're not willing to compromise or vote for these bills. We've got plenty of Democrats and Republicans who will vote for a compromise and move something forward. It's just this issue of sort of the extremes being in control right now. Um, 
obviously one of the biggest issues right now is funding the the funding that's tied ukraine and the border um congressman golden in the second district is part of a bipartisan team that's introduced a bill um that's uh sort of being referred to as being something that slimmed down a little bit uh what do you think of the bill that congressman golden has um introduced and also just what do you think needs to happen uh well again um what we really need is the Republican speaker to be willing to take up the bill that passed the Senate. That passed by a huge majority. It already is a compromise. It has everything the Republicans asked us to do. That's Ukraine, um, Israel, the humanitarian aid for Gaza, as well as a, a border compromise that not everyone likes, but at least it moves the debate forward. I really appreciate Representative Golden and his and the other Republicans he's working with. It's a it's a bipartisan group trying to look for something that would pass uh, to give us the desperately needed funding for Ukraine. The I would have a hard time voting for it because uh, it funds Ukraine and Israel and a few other defense needs, but it doesn't have any humanitarian aid in Gaza. And I think people would be really distressed uh, at this point in time if there wasn't more humanitarian aid. I think that you you just have to do that. You have to have some conditions on that funding. So um, I'm not sure it could move forward. Now, look, bills can be amended. It can be a conversation starter. It's a way of saying, hey, maybe there's something we could get through the House. Right now, the Republicans are saying we won't do anything in the House unless it's tied to um, dealing with the border crisis and immigration. And their bill doesn't do anything related to that. But if there was, you know, if there's a way to work it out, um, that's what we do in Congress. So good for them for trying to find another way to go at it. Eventually, we're going to have to vote for something. And right now, um, unfortunately, we're just getting a lot of people blocking everything. And um, that's unfortunate. You know, these <laughs> we're here to provide security in the world. I think we've all been horrified by watching um, the uh, empowerment of Putin, whether it's moving forward in Ukraine or the murder of um, Navalny, um, the most recent you know, attack on a dissident in Spain. I mean, it just, it feels like we need to sound the alarm and move forward. And um, funding Ukraine is really critically important. Congresswoman, it sounds like you do support the Senate bill. Well, I think it would be a little bit hard um, because I'm not completely enamored with the border stuff. But if if we continue to go these through these machinations, it comes to the House uh, I would very seriously consider it. Um, I'm, I'm more likely a yes than a no on that because of the compromises that are in there and because it does have a humanitarian funding in it. But um, there's no perfect bill. Welcome to Congress. You're home in Maine. Um, I understand that North Haven, where you live, and Vinyl Haven had a lot of storm damage. What are you seeing um, as you have a chance? I mean, I know that in January you're here as well, but as you're able to look around. Oh, it's just heartbreaking. Um, you know, I, uh, Dale Brown's boat yard in, in our community was um, seriously damaged. And a lot of our working waterfront um, was attacked. I went to the Port Clyde Fisherman's Pier where they had an enormous amount of um, challenges. And I saw some other piers in the Midcoast area that were just destroyed. Um, also in Southern Maine, uh, places like Wales and York where homes are right on the harbor or community infrastructure was damaged. Uh, we haven't um, seen the final bill on that one because uh, there's been an extension to file for disaster assistance, but 
Uh, I feel confident there, there's an enormous amount of disaster there and the, the state will get some funding to assist with it. But it was a it was a real shock to people, I think, to see how high the tide came, how serious the storm surge was, how much damage that can be done in places, um, you know, that had been there for 150 years, almost 200 years, what happened in Stonington and so many other fishing communities. Uh, and we are all on the delegation just dedicated to find any kind of funding to rebuild. Um, there are, you know, little fishing piers that have been used by families or fishermen in, in communities all up and down the coast that um, are going to be hard to find the funding for. Uh, there are homes, um, second homes that people have been coming to for years down in places like Wells Beach, um, you know, that may not be repairable. And I, I guess, you know, the most important thing is, is finding disaster assistance now, um, making sure that communities have the assistance they need to to move forward and plan for um, what's coming in the future. How do we preserve our our working waterfront, our waterfront in communities where you know people live and and have their businesses? Uh, this is in many ways coming upon us faster, I think, than people were imagining. And every bit of support that we can give to the planning process, to the disaster process, and honestly, a little bit to just reminding people, um, you know, climate change is real. And all these solutions that we talk about that we bicker about all the time, whether it's wind or solar or electric cars or all these things, like we, we have to do these things if we really want to change what's happening. And, you know, there's a little bit of a disconnect on that. Um, and I, I just hope we can continue that dialogue and that these these storms that we had in December with all the flooding and, and um, uh, in January with a, a other um, extreme weather they're just a reminder to people that this is this is bigger than all of us and it's moving fast. Speaking of working waterfronts, you have reintroduced a bill to uh, help working waterfronts. I know this is an issue you've been working on for years. Why did you reintroduce it now, um, given where Congress is? Yeah, well, um, <laughs> Congress is a little bit of a of, uh, you, you know, you you wait and wait and wait, and then all of a sudden there's a moment for something uh, that you're working on. And this is an important bill uh, that I've had for a while. It's bipartisan. There are versions of it in the Senate. And, um, you know, we have very broad support in our delegation for it. But it's really recognizing how much of our working waterfront we've already lost. Um, and, and not everything in the disaster relief programs covers um, the working waterfronts. It's complicated uh, if you have a working waterfront, but for instance, you don't have flood insurance because it's too expensive, then you can't qualify for an SBA loan. There's there's a lot of things that impede our ability to hold on to the waterfront. And I think these storms have um, really enhanced our knowledge of that, unfortunately, shown us how difficult it is. Um, so this is a way to have some grants, some low interest loans um, to really protect what's so vital uh, waterfronts have historically always had a lot of development pressure. I mean, who doesn't want to live on the waterfront? Um, who doesn't want to, you know, take over that cute little fish shack and make it to your summer home? But we have to do what we can to protect as much as possible so that um, all of the fishing industries and related industries still have a way to access the water. So I see this as sort of yet another wake up call moment to remind people that these storms are real. They're they're damaging things. And when we get the numbers at the end of February, I think we're going to be shocked to see how much of our existing working waterfront is damaged and has to be repaired. And um, and also, we have to invest in some resilience to figure out how to protect it from the next storm. 
Congresswoman Pingree, we have so many very, very serious questions coming in already, but I have to ask you about something that's a little more fun. I understand that you are a member of the Pickleball Caucus. Is that really a thing? And um, what does the Pickleball Caucus do? Well, I can't say I created the Pickleball Caucus, but it's nice to have something lighthearted every once in a while in Congress that's Republican and Democrat, and um, there's either a universal love or hatred for um, but, you know, it's become uh, such a popular sport uh, in practically everybody's community. It's uh, it's good for all ages. I'm not much good at it myself, and I don't get a lot of time to do it. But even my colleagues in Congress find time once in a while to play a little pickleball in the gym or, or even outside. Um, and we've supported some, uh, you know, some uh, funding proposals that have gone to uh, communities to enhance mostly their recreational opportunities, but sometimes that means the expansion of, of pickleball courts as well as, you know, tennis and all kinds of things to get us outdoors. I mean, we've really learned, um, you know, being uh, physically active is great for you. Being physically active outdoors is particularly good and finding ways to outdoor join uh, enjoy the outdoors in Maine is good. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm happy to support pickleball or any outdoor recreation for adults or kids. Well, as I mentioned, so many questions already coming in for Congresswoman Pingree. What is your question? You can send a very brief email, please, to talk at mainpublic.org. Post a comment on Facebook or Instagram or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Jennifer Rooks. My guest today, U.S. Congresswoman Shelley Pingree. She moved to Maine as a teenager and has graduated from the College of the Atlantic here in Maine and now lives in North Haven. She's represented Maine's first congressional district since 2009. Join the conversation by email, talk at mainepublic.org, comment on Facebook or Instagram, or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. Congresswoman, this won't come as a surprise to you. A lot of questions about Gaza. I'm going to choose one um, as a representative email here. This is from Richard. Richard writes, why haven't you spoken out loudly and forcefully against the genocide that Israel is committing in Gaza and against President Biden's repeated veto of UN ceasefire resolutions? When a destructive fire breaks out, you don't pour oil on the fire, you try to put it out. Likewise, when a terrible war breaks out, causing suffering and destruction, you don't choose a side and send them more ammunition. Instead, you try to stop the fighting. Isn't that common sense? Well, thank you for the question. I know there's a lot of concern. We hear from a lot of people in our office and um, and I share their concerns. Um, I'm sorry he hasn't heard from me more loudly, but um, I called for a bilateral ceasefire back in November. So I've been uh, concerned about this from the start and uh, happy to share some of the other things that we've done. Um, I'm concerned about the vetoing of the ceasefire resolutions. I hope that they're working on another um, kind of resolve on that um, at the Security Council. I have never been a supporter of the Netanyahu government. I think it was put together under bad circumstances. Uh, clearly, there were a lot of distractions going on during the horrific attack of Hamas on Israel. But uh, what followed that is mostly inexcusable. Um, I, I, I just have, I have so many things that I disagree with here. Um, we're not getting enough humanitarian aid into Palestine, Palest the, to the Palestinians. Uh, the strategy of Israel of not using more targeted weapons is really unthinkable under this situation. 
Um, I've I've written numerous letters with my colleagues to um, Secretary Blinken on everything from our humanitarian concerns to allowing, believing we should have temporary protected status of Palestinians coming to this country. I've written about settler violence in the West Bank and the displacement of the Palestinians, questioning the president's arms transfer to Israel. Um, yeah, I'm I'm very, very frustrated with the situation and um, doing all that I possibly can at this point to, to, to stop it, to get a ceasefire, to get the hostages returned. Um, to end what's just been a terrible, terrible destruction. Also, I have, since I came to Congress, supported a two-state solution and worked vocally on that and other kinds of support for Palestine. So this is very much in line with what I've been doing since I came. We'll go to Chris, who's calling from East Machias. Hi, Chris. Go ahead. Thank you so much. And Congresswoman uh, Pingree, I'm 71 years old. I can remember my father and mother were staunch Republicans, yet I remember my mother weeping at the death of President Kennedy. And my first election was 1972, and a store owner went up one side of me and down the other because I voted for McGovern. But I confess to you that I'm scared because I fear that the 2024 presidential election could be one of the most divisive times in our history. As much so maybe as Vietnam or possibly worse. And my question is simply this, what can we do? Yeah, thank you for your question. I, I, I am very worried, too, about the the overall health of our democracy and this upcoming election. Um, you know, some of the some of the things I worry most about are the the misinformation that can get out there during election. Now we're watching the AI artificial intelligence manipulate manipulation. And there have already been examples over the last year or two in in foreign elections where something happens in the last few days. Um, the influence of social media where people get often inaccurate information but find it's true. I mean, and I sympathize to a lot of it. We are, we're often confronted with something that's like, oh, well, that looks so real. It must be true. Or I saw it on the Internet. I'm, I should believe it. Um, but we can be so easily um, man manipulated during an election cycle um, if Former President Trump is the nominee. We know uh, how unwilling he was to accept the outcome of an election uh, last time in the in the um, horrific events of January 6th. So I, I believe you. There's a there's a lot to worry about, and um, I feel like it's one of my most important jobs in Congress to to uphold and protect democracy, to talk about the truth, make people make sure people get good information, and uh, I, I really appreciate you raising that. Chris, thanks so much for your call. Um, as Chris pointed out, it is, an, it is an election year, Congresswoman. Also, the, before we were just talking about um, uh, what's going on in Israel and Gaza. And um, there has been a lot of strife within your own party, the Democratic Party, over the president's um, response. There are people who are not voting, for example, in the Michigan primary because of it. What is this doing to the Democratic Party this year? And, and what are your concerns in an election year? Yeah, it's never easy to have a major conflict during an election year, but um, this happens often in our country. And I, 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 I hope that there is a ceasefire um, soon. I hope that the, we, are, we see the end of this conflict and a beginning of the restoration of Gaza. Um, 
So I hope that we can see some change there, but these are world events out of our control. I, I feel very strongly that we would be in much, much worse hands um, under a, a future President Trump back again. He was a close ally of Netanyahu, and I doubt um, that he would show any regard for the Palestinians. He cut off a lot of their aid. He um, had no interest in supporting a two-state solution. So I think we would be in much worse uh much worse situation, and I do appreciate this administration, while I don't always agree with them, are are constantly with Secretary Blinken and our Secretary of Defense, they're over there trying to negotiate an end to this war. Um, but it is gonna be a hard election year, let, let's face it. Um, and and you can't change that, you can't control what, what's going on, you know, whether it's um, how people feel about how this president is handling climate change or other international situations, um, it, it's, it's just never easy. And um, people will make the decision that they, they feel is right. But um, I'm, I'm certainly worried about it. We'll go to Paul, who's calling from Rockland. Hi, Paul. Go ahead. Good morning, Jennifer, and good morning, Congresswoman. Thank you, first of all, for all the hard work you do for us down in D.C., I, it's my understanding you are a co-sponsor of the Social Security Fairness Act. I'm wondering if you could comment on where that stands. Um, I am a, re a retired teacher, and my Social Security is cut down to one-third. So I'm wondering where that stands. It seems like it would be a win-win for both sides of the aisle. Yeah, thank you, Paul, for your call and, and your nice words. Um, yeah, for those people who don't know this uh, situation, it's just it's unbelievably unfair to a lot of people in Maine who particularly retired teachers, those who served as teachers and state employees, um, have a pension cut that is dramatic. And let's just say a teacher's pension isn't very big to start out with. So um, I've talked to so many people who are impacted by that. There is a piece of legislation called the Social Security um, fairness Act, it would eliminate this thing called the windfall elimination provision, um, which has been around for, for quite a while. I think it goes back to Governor McKernan's time and only certain states selected to do this. So one of the challenges has been that it doesn't impact every state in the nation and we have to get you know enough of our colleagues to sign on to it um, to make the change. Um, but it, it has gotten some traction uh, last year in the... Um, Ways and Means Committee, and um, we do have a bipartisan bill on it. Um, uh, so I hope we can continue to move forward. I, I don't know. This is a hard year to get anything done, but these are the kinds of things I was mentioning earlier. Sometimes we can move them into a bigger bill if we can pass anything, an appropriations bill or anything this year. Um, but I, boy, I, I have, uh, I've been working on this for a long time. We we almost thought we were there during the last Congress. Um, so I have hope that we will get there because we've gotten so close. We'll go to Richard calling from Sebago Lake. Hi, Richard, go ahead. Hi, good morning. Uh, Ms. Pingree, I've been a big fan of yours for many, many years. And um, something that's occurred to me in the past, um, Susan Collins has been a tolerable uh, representative of our state. Um, I'm a, I'm a very left, uh, leaning person, but, um, I think she crossed the line when she endorsed Trump's Supreme court nominees. And, and I, I, I would like to see her go, 
you are one of the people who I think could probably unseat her. Richard, th- you, thank you for your call. Um, uh, just to be clear, Senator Collins is not up for re-election until 2026. Uh, uh, Shelley Pingree, I'm sure you've been asked this many times. Um, would you challenge her? Um, well, thank you for your kind words, and I really appreciate your uh, saying nice things about me. Uh, I, I did, for those who have a long memory, I did challenge uh, Senator Collins way back in 2002 and wasn't successful. Uh, but was very fortunate in 2008 to get an opportunity to serve in the House. Uh, I have a great working relationship with Senator Collins. And while we don't always agree, and I certainly didn't agree on the Supreme Court nominees, uh, I do appreciate that close working relationship really throughout our delegation. We've got, you know, an independent, a Republican, two Democrats, and uh, we think mostly about the state of Maine. So I value that relationship. Uh, 2026 is is. Look, I'm I'm not I'm not going to be the one to challenge any of our senators. Um, I love my love my role in the House. So much of what we do, frankly, is based on knowledge and seniority, and working relationships with people on both sides of the aisle. And the value that I've had in in being in the House um, is being able to serve on a committee like Appropriations, to chair a subcommittee when I'm in the majority, um, to work on things like the Farm Bill with the amount of seniority that I've got. It makes it, um, it it makes it possible for me to be more effective for Maine, to be better at, at solving problems. And so while people always kind of have this sense of, uh, well, what are you going to run for next? Well, why don't you do this? Um, I'll let the Senate stick to the Senate, and I'll just be very happy um, to be in the House and be able to do the work that I do. Richard, thanks for your call. Uh, we'll move down to York and Sally. Hi, Sally. Go ahead. Um, <clears throat> thank you. I'm uh, thinking of climate change and energy use to move produce. Even in summer, produce at the grocery store comes from other countries. Does this have to do with trade agreements and or uh, the fact that most of the food grown in the U.S. is used to feed animals? Uh, Sally, what a great question. Um... Boy, I just love that you brought that up. And I spend a lot of time working on agricultural policy um, and on the on the current farm bill, uh, which gets reauthorized every five years. Uh, I have sponsored multiple bills and worked on funding to get more uh, local produce in our grocery stores to support our small to medium sized farmers, to support um uh, you know, institutions like schools and bigger institutions accessing food locally and to support them in doing that. Um, and I think we all have to be aware when we go to buy something in the grocery store, uh, is there something local that I could buy that would f- support a local farmers or farmer? Or could I join um, a CSA or a co-op or is there a farmer's market I could buy from on the weekends? And the more we can all do of that, the more we give markets to those people. You're absolutely right um, that the majority of our produce is on the road for something like 10 days and travels about 1,200 miles on its way to the grocery store. Uh, a lot of it comes from California, but I've seen a shift over over time. And I, I'm doing everything I can to promote that shift in the ways that I said. And, and some of that is just supporting the local farmers to make it available. Sometimes it's because we as Americans want to be um, able to buy anything, any time of year. And that means you have to get it from anywhere. If you're going to eat a raspberry in February, it's probably not being grown in Maine. If you're going to eat lettuce, spinach, kale, 
Um, you might well get it from Maine because we have a lot of producers who are growing throughout the winter in hoop houses and throughout other ways. So um, sometimes you can be a smart consumer and think about what you need to do to do that. Um, uh, but also we, we really do need to uh, continue to support our farmers and create those markets for them. Sally, thanks for your question. Um, I have an email. Let's see here. We have so many emails. I want to make sure I'm getting a variety here. Okay, this one is from Patricia. I received a text this morning from Sandy Hook Promise. Quote, right now people can still buy guns online and at gun shows without a background check. The Senate introduced a bill last year to fix this, but still hasn't voted on it yet. What? And uh, Patricia writes, what in all caps with a couple question marks. Yeah, thanks for your question. I mean, I'm I'm a strong supporter of a national background check bill. Um, I'm a strong supporter of a lot of uh, gun safety related legislation. I would like to see us um, ban assault weapons. I would like to see us uh, close the bump stock loophole, have background checks. There's 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 a list so long I couldn't possibly go through it. Um, look, it's Maine. I strongly support my neighbor's right to hunt. I appreciate the sort of uh, sportsman side of Maine, but I think um, unfortunately last year in Lewiston we saw uh, you know some of the horrific side of gun ownership and easy gun ownership. Um, so I'm glad to see the Maine legislature is having yet uh, more debates around this. Um, looking at whether we should have a red flag law in Maine instead of a yellow flag law. Um, but I would make it easier for Maine by supporting a red flag law that would be national. So um, thank you for your question. It's uh, it's frustrating that um, for so long we've been unable to make progress on gun laws um, at the federal level. An email here from Jean. Please th thank Congresswoman Pingree for co-sponsoring the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act. I just learned that Canada's carbon rebate is putting money into citizens' pockets every three months while reducing carbon emissions. I hope that it won't be long before such an act is in effect in the United States, as it's the most effective way to address climate change. Yeah, thanks for calling in. There's a, a really wonderful and dedicated persistent group in Maine who have been working on this for a long time. And uh, I fully agree. It's a, it's a way to have a in a sense, a carbon tax, but it returns the money directly to the pockets of um, average citizens. So uh, everyone benefits from it. Um, I, I I don't know how we get out of the quandary that we're in now of um, trying to move forward on voluntary um, renewable energy use uh, without something like that. But uh, one of the things that we did in the Inflation Reduction Act, the the largest investment in climate change and renewable energy ever made in Congress was just to try to incentivize, um, support people in this process. Uh, and we're, we're doing our best in Congress, but I fully support um, the legislation you asked me about and um, really am grateful to all the Mainers who have, uh, have supported that and let us know about it. We are speaking with U.S. Representative Shelley Pingree, first district representative in Congress. If you have a question for her, our phone number, 1-800-399-3566. If you're quick, you have time to send a quick email, talk at mainpublic.org. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Joining me today, Congresswoman Shelley Pingree. Share your comments or questions by email. If you're quick, talk at mainepublic.org. Find us on social media or call 1-800-399-3566. Here is, um, let's see, an email from Sandy. Much of the climate change efforts are going to reducing current and future emissions. What are we doing to draw down greenhouse gases that are already in the atmosphere from past emissions and causing climate change now? Especially what are we doing to protect the natural systems that absorb and store those gases? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. Um, and I, uh, I work a lot on this issue um, and I'm very, very interested in it. I've, um, I've visited in other countries and in this country, some of the carbon capture techniques that are going on in all different kinds of ways. Um, some of them high tech um, and some of them very simple. Uh, but I am a huge proponent of the nature-based solutions. We even have a nature-based solutions caucus around this in Congress. And we look at things that you're describing, the, the ability of trees to sequester carbon, the ability of the ocean, particularly with adding back more kelp and seaweed and the things that sequester um, carbon out of the ocean. Um, and then of course, agriculture. And, and I'm probably most active in that field. Um, I have a bill that I've worked on for quite a while and many pieces of it have been incorporated into the farm bill and other places on um, you know, renewable, uh, basically carbon sequestration in the soil. The more organic matter you have in the soil, um, the more you're likely to hold some of that carbon from the atmosphere in the soil. So everything is important, protecting our old growth forests, having sustainable forests, honestly having a vital um, forest products industry that continues to recycle trees so that forests are kept up is really important, but also rewarding farmers um, who use good conservation practices. And that's actually one of our current um, debates in the farm bill, but it's also something we've invested a lot of money and uh, close to $20 billion in the IRA goes to conservation programs for no-till agriculture, more cover crops, composting, the kinds of things that really that really work on that. So um, very important. Thanks for bringing it up. It's, it's really critical. And you know, in Maine, we have a lot to be proud of. Um, we have a high percentage of farmers who use the conservation program. Of course, we're the most forested state in the nation, and we have a lot of sustainable forest pra practices that go on here. So we're constantly renewing our forest. Um, we do a lot of great things. We're, we're making wood fiber insulation out of wood, which is, you know, just a wonderful thing because you not only, um, you know, not only have the growth of the trees, but when you um, put that wood fiber insulation in your house or you use wood in construction, you store that carbon in that wood um, just the way that the tree did it. So um, much better than using concrete or metal, a whole variety of other things. So uh, it's, it's a really great thing to be doing. I probably ought to ask you, Congresswoman, um, speaking of renewable energy, um, Governor Mills just this past week announced that she prefers Sears Island as the a site for the, um, you know, the, the, the facility that will support wind turbines. Uh, do you support that decision? Yeah, I mean, I'm not an insider on that particular conversation. Um, I don't know that we've had a federal component of it or any kind of federal questions come to us. Uh, I know it's been controversial for people because Sears Island has been protected land and is much used by um, birders and hikers. Um, and um, I'm sure it was a very difficult decision for the governor because uh, Mac Point is available now, but it's also owned by, um, you know, Sprague Energy. So the town, the community would have to, or the state, I guess, would have to keep paying 
um, for a long time. None of these decisions are easy. And, uh, you know, I live in Penobscot Bay, so I'm not too far away. But eventually, if we really want to deal with renewable energy and make sure we've made that conversion, I think offshore wind has to be a part of it. And someplace will have to be the port where we do that service. So I know there'll be a lot of back and forth of the people who agree and disagree. And I'm sure there's a process that the state goes through around that. But eventually, um, we can't constantly say, oh, I believe in renewable energy, but oh, by the way, I don't want to see any wind towers and I don't want solar panels and I personally am not going to get engaged. Um, and I will mention one thing, and this is just a little plug. In the IRA, there were, uh, that's again, this this big bill we passed last year or year two years ago. Um, there's an enormous amount of funding that are incentives for homeowners and Main owners, main, mainers are starting to take advantage of this, but I'm just such a big believer in figuring out what you can do, not because it's your uh, ideological responsibility, but you can save yourself a lot of money. Uh, electric rates go up, oil prices are high. We're a very difficult state to, you know, heat in the winter and cool in the summer. Uh, hopefully we don't have to cool as much, but it's getting hotter. But anyway, there are incentives in that bill um, to help you put solar panels on the roof or to convert to heat pumps. The state has also had a big heat pump proposal, but you can get a lot of discounts on that between the state and the federal government. Buy an electric car or a plug-in car. Um, put a heat pump hot water heater in your basement. Put in more insulation. All these things have a component of um, subsidy or tax credits. And now is the time to do it because the nice thing is once you make that investment, you're going to see a lower utility bill. You're going to feel good about, oh, man, I did my part on climate change. I'm reducing my use of fossil fuels, um, but I'm also uh, saving money in the end. And and um, I know I live in one of those houses that has solar panels, and I just can't believe how great it is to see my electric bill at the end of the month, which is, you know, virtually very small. I, I did come across a website the other day that I wanted to mention because I think people often, and I do too, get get completely confused when they look at the, you know, the websites that are like, uh, here's all the government mumbo jumbo about what you can get. And I came across one called Rewiring America that I think is a nonprofit organization where you literally just plug in, you know, where you live, a few little facts, and uh, it will tell you, oh, here's what you would qualify for if you buy an electric car. Here's what you'd qualify for if you put solar panels on the roof. And it takes away a lot of this confusion that hits all of us. But um, we also have some resources on our, our website on this. And I just recommend to everybody, look into it. You might save some money and you might feel like you're doing your part um, to reduce your use of fossil fuels as well. We'll go to Ethan calling from Saco. Hi, Ethan, go ahead. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I don't think I've ever spoken with you, Mrs. Pingree, but uh, please, I know you know my father, so please say hi to Bill over on Vinyl Haven. Um, uh, I was calling about Gaza and uh, Ukraine, but you already talked about Gaza, and I'll just say this. We, the United States, stands alone in the world about Gaza and the children. So we can do better. I know we can't. But on Ukraine, the Donbass area, this is NATO pushing pure and simple up against Putin. Nobody wants war. And I am tired of my tax dollars when I see homeless and uh, roads and bridges that need to be repaired. I'm tired 
of seeing my tax dollars going to war and 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 we're not getting the truth from the media and i'll leave it right there thank you for your time yes thank you very much and i and thank you again i i you know i i'm glad you brought up guys again the children uh just it's really a horrific situation and it and it has to end now i i thoroughly agree with you on that and i also understand your concerns about ukraine i i I agree with you that we have to balance our spending to make sure uh, that we are investing in housing for our homeless or affordable housing. We have a housing crisis in Maine. Um, we have to invest in our infrastructure, which we've been doing in Congress, in roads, in bridges, in rail, in all of the many things that need to be improved, our our ports, our, our ferries. You know, it's just across the board. And um, our infrastructure bill did make one of the strongest investments um, in history in our infrastructure. And you're right, it's hard to see your tax dollars going to foreign nations. Um, but I also listen to a lot of briefings and have a lot of concern about um, Russia's attack on Ukraine. I have a lot of concern about what could happen to a free Europe that we've um, been able to um, have that opportunity to have our allies free ever since World War II. I, I abhor war and I hate investing in, in these things. Uh, but I just also have a lot of concerns about what happens if we don't do something about it. And frankly, the humanitarian side of what's going, in, going on in Ukraine. Um, same thing, the death of children, uh, you know, just horrible things that happened during this war in Ukraine, as well as the war in Paus, uh, Gaza and Israel. It's it, it's unthinkable. And it's a very hard thing to do in Congress to to sort through all the truths and untruths and and decide what actions we should take. It's it's tough. And and uh, I appreciate your thoughts. We'll go to Roy calling from Freeport. Hi, Roy. Go ahead. Hi, Jennifer. Uh, yes. Uh, um, I'm not sure how many people are, are aware of the fact that uh, uh, during a shutdown, um, members of Congress continue to get paid. And yet there are two million federal employees that be, will be uh, uh, not paid during the time that there is a shutdown, and, and uh, the current House uh, Speaker Mike Johnson continues to toy with the idea of a government shutdown. I just what, I didn't know whether people were aware that people uh, that uh, congressional uh, representatives and senators continue to get paid during a shutdown. Yes, good point. And uh, we've often had pieces of legislation to try to tie a shutdown. Um, you know, to our pay. Apparently, the way I understand it is there's actually a provision in the Constitution uh, that allows for the pay of Congress members, and we can't change that. Now, we can turn our pay back, we can donate it to a charitable organization, but in terms of getting the actual paycheck, um, it's, a, it's a constitutional provision, and I think it was set up so that I can't even explain why it was set up, but that's but that's the way it goes. But I I agree with you. I think there are people who think, um, how dare Congress not do its duty to keep the government operating? In some ways, national security and keep the government operating are maybe the two most basic functions uh, that we should see ourselves as required to do. And particularly when people toy with shutting down the government, um, you know, we have colleagues on the Republican side who get up and routinely make speeches that say, maybe it wouldn't be so bad. You know, maybe maybe we should teach people a lesson and shut down the government for a little while. Well, you're right. Those are 
Those are federal employees, many of whom are living from paycheck to paycheck. So you're asking the people who serve us every day um, to go to work without a paycheck. Those are vital services. Sometimes it's for the VA. Sometimes it's for hunger assistance. Um, sometimes it's just keeping our national parks open. The last time we had a big shutdown in the fall, um, they shut down Acadia. And you had all those businesses in Bar Harbor who depend on making their income during that time of year. Yet if the national park is shut down, suddenly the tourists don't come uh, or, or and the whole system falls apart. So very good point. I, I don't disagree with you. I would be happy to see those thing, two things tied together. Um, and my understanding is people have tried, just haven't been able to figure out a mechanism to do it. Roy, thank you for calling in. Here's an email from Nancy. I'm very concerned about the upcoming elections and the yet lack of movement in Congress. What can an ordinary citizen do to force the government to move forward? Many of us are very frustrated by the present situation. Uh, Congresswoman, we hear this a lot from our audience. What can I do? Yeah, and, and thank you for your, your question. And I think it's unthinkable that you could have a Congress um, as dysfunctional as this one is. Um, now, look, I, I'm a Democrat, and it's going to be very hard for me to give you an idea of what to do that doesn't involve a Republican. But Republican control of this particular Congress um, has really put us in a position where we can't get anything done. And as I described earlier, um, the Republicans, when they're in control, have all these rules that say we don't want Democrats help. We don't want to do bipartisan things. We only want to have um, the majority of the majority pass our bills. So you have people like Chip Roy and um, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and a whole variety of people who dominate the debate and are able to block any bill. We also have very, very close margins. It's under five votes any any day um, back and forth. So it's a small margin. So, you know, from my perspective, um, we have to get rid of some of the Republicans in places um, where there are swing seats, uh, where they currently have the majority. Uh, I never had a time when the Democrats were in the majority where we didn't have bipartisan passage of bills, where we didn't um, depend on Republicans and Democrats to pass a budget, to pass a farm bill, to pass a defense bill. That's just how we've always had to do it. So uh, get me some more colleagues. Congresswoman Pingree, that's going to be the last word. Thank you so much for joining us today. Shelley Pingree represents Maine's 1st Congressional District. Today's sound engineer was Sam Tracy. You can visit our Maine Calling website to sign up for the weekly newsletter or to listen to past programs. That's maincalling.org. Tomorrow on the program, a really terrific show. We're going to find out what some of our Maine public colleagues like to do for fun. And there are some unusual hobbies. It's part of our Pastimes and Passions series. We'd like to hear from you as well. I'm Jennifer Rooks. You've been listening to Maine Calling on Maine Public Radio.